Hi, I'm Desiree. Welcome to my dark happy place. How is everyone this week? Thanks for joining me. I'm so glad you made it. Welcome to episode number seven. Today's case is one about a possessive husband and the eternal question of what actually happened to his wife. This is the case of Yolanda Panek. Cue the trigger warning. Today's episode contains real events that happen to real people. There will be graphic descriptions of very sensitive subjects, such as domestic violence, child endangerment, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, so let's get into it. Yolanda Yvette Panek was born on June 24, 1974, in Portland, Oregon. She was an only child to her mother, Susan. Yolanda was, by all accounts, a very well-rounded, likable girl. She went to James Madison High School, where she was a top academic and a top athlete. She was an honor student, getting good grades, and setting records for the sports she played in. She ran track, played volleyball and basketball, and set the school shot put record. She was even voted most inspirational by her classmates. When she was 18, she held the title of the Rose Festival Princess in 1992 at the annual Portland Rose Festival. The Rose Festival started back in 1907 as basically just a big gathering with parades and carnivals and concerts, etc., and it's used as a fundraiser and a way to celebrate the city of Portland. After graduation, Yolanda used her great academics and her book smart to help local women in the area. She ran a program tutoring local female students in math and science at the YWCA in Portland. Up until this point in her life, everything seemed to be going pretty well for her. While she was in high school, she met a man named Abdul Rashid Alwadud, or otherwise known as Daryl Devereaux, and this would end up being her undoing. I don't know where his alias came from. I saw it reported in multiple sources, but since he's listed most places as Abdul, that's what I'm going to refer to him as. Abdul was born on March of 1968, so he was six years older than Yolanda. I didn't see a specific year that they met, just that she'd met him while she was a student in high school. And even if she was 18 at the time, that's a little bit sketchy. Most guys in their mid-20s don't want a high school girl unless they're looking for someone they think is vulnerable that they can mold and shape into what they want. The saying, just because it's legal doesn't mean it's right, comes to mind. And if she was in high school, depending on her age, it might not even have been legal. They met while she was in high school, like I said, and by 1993, when she was 19, they got married. They got married in an unsanctioned Muslim wedding, so... They were never legally married, but were rather considered what's known as common-law husband and wife. They had a baby together later that year, a boy they named Saeed. Just as quickly as things had taken off with the romance, they went downhill. About a month after Saeed was born, Yolanda filed a restraining order against Abdur. He had threatened to kill her on multiple occasions. Much of the resentment he had towards her was her refusal to raise their son in Islam. In the restraining order request, she claimed that he was physically abusive towards her. She said Abdur had threatened to slash her throat, had tried to strangle her, and had shoved her. In the restraining order, Yolanda said, quote, 
He has told me that as a Muslim, he has consulted with others who advised him to follow the law of the land, but if that were not the case, he would slit my throat and that would be justified, unquote. Just a little side note, Abdur was a student enrolled at Portland State University when the two got married, and he graduated from there in June of 1995 with a degree in English and Middle Eastern Studies. Before his graduation, he worked in the composition room at the Oregonian, which is a newspaper, till May of 1995, and then after his graduation, he moved down to California and started looking for teaching jobs that way. This all brings us to the fateful night we're here to talk about. On the night of July 13, 1995, Yolanda was staying at the Capri Motel on the 1500 block of Northeast 83rd Street in Portland with her son Saeed in a room on the second floor. The next morning, July 14th, her room was found in total disarray, with her and Saeed nowhere to be found. She had missed her 10 o'clock wake-up call, and the maid had gone in to start getting the room cleaned up, ready for the next guest. When the maid walked in, she found that the sheets had been stripped from both beds, the towels were missing, and worst of all, the mattress was soaked with blood. The police were immediately called to start the investigation. They got to the motel, and they searched the room and the surrounding area, and in the dumpster outside, they found the linens from Yolanda's motel room, a piece of electrical cord that had been cut from the lamp in the room, and Yolanda's socks, shoes, and her tank top. Outside the window to her motel room, they found smears of blood on the sidewalk. Now remember, her room was on the second floor, and the smears were on the ground level. Still, after the search at the motel, there was no sign of Yolanda or Saeed anywhere. Thankfully... Two-year-old Saeed was all right. He'd been found alive and, quote-unquote, in good condition around 7 a.m. on July 14th, just a couple hours before the scene was discovered at the motel. An anonymous call had been made and tipped the police off on his location. Saeed had been left alone, locked inside of Yolanda's Dodge Spirit at a Greyhound bus station near downtown Portland. When the car was searched, there was blood found in the trunk and in the interior of the car. This poor baby would have had to see his mom bloodied in that car after what he just witnessed in that motel room and then was just left alone for who knows how long. All speculation was that Abdur had killed or at the very least badly hurt Yolanda. That alone right there tells me that the root issue wasn't the care for his son or whether Saeed was being raised in Islam. It was Abdur's obsessive need to control Yolanda and have power over her. If it was about his son's care, he would have never subjected that innocent baby to what he witnessed that night and then just abandoned him at a bus station. The refusal from Yolanda to not raise Saeed Muslim was something that she wasn't allowing Abdur to have control over her, and he could not stand that. He could not stand that she wasn't following his orders. At least that's how I'm seeing it. A missing persons report was filed for Yolanda as the search for her took place and the evidence was being collected against Abdur. Her report listed her as 21 years old, African-American female, about 6 feet tall, 105 pounds, with black hair and brown eyes. It said she had pierced ears and was last seen wearing a black tank top, a denim skirt, a white belt, white socks, white sneakers, and carrying a Dooney and Burke purse. A warrant was issued for Abdur's arrest about a week after Yolanda's disappearance and suspected murder. Turns out a couple of days before the attack at the Capri Motel, Abdur had gone and bought himself a new knife. Abdur was found to be living at his mom's house in East Palo Alto, California. Remember I said he had gone down that way to look for jobs? After leaving Oregon, he had moved in to his mom's house and was living with her, his sister, and his other wife. 
Yep, he had another wife in California, but he just could not let Yolanda live her own life. The evidence for the warrant was the blood found in the motel room that was registered to Yolanda and the fact that he had made a 911 call from the area, even though he denied ever being in the area that night. That anonymous 911 call that led the police to Saeed came from Abdur. I guess he didn't think that one as far through as he needed to. He just thought far enough to get rid of his problem, Yolanda. All of this evidence, the suspicious circumstances, along with the current restraining order as to proof that he had threatened her previously, were enough to get the warrant to arrest him, and he was arrested on July 20th and then extradited back to Oregon. The trial began in March of 1996 and was considered a no-body trial. These kinds of trials, as you can imagine, are pretty hard to get a conviction on. There's no body, meaning there's no proof of exact method of murder, cause or time of death, evidence to show who the killer is, just an overall lack of evidence to be able to convince a jury beyond a reasonable doubt that the person on trial is guilty. The evidence that's normally used in these cases is mainly circumstantial. Prosecution said that Abdur killed Yolanda for several reasons. The first reason was her unwillingness to raise their son in the Muslim faith. The second was that Abdur had a suspicion that she had aborted a pregnancy without his knowledge. And the third reason was that he was jealous of a new relationship she was in. He had a whole ass wife in a different state, but Yolanda couldn't move on and be with somebody else. Now, her aborting the baby without telling him if that happened, in my opinion, her body, her choice, and he was abusing her and threatening to kill her anyway, so why would she want to bring another kid into the mix? Prosecutor Rodney Underhill went hard trying to get the jury on their side and show that Abdur needed to go to jail for Yolanda's murder, which, like I said, would not be an easy feat with there being no body. He presented this idea as to what happened that night. He said they believe Abdur got to the motel, went to the room, and an argument ensued. They think he then slashed her throat and pushed her out the window of the second-story room onto the sidewalk below. They think he then placed her body in the trunk of her car before finally placing her body into his rental car to dispose of her. Her body has never been located still to this day. I'm surprised there were no witnesses. There had to have been a bunch of noise and screaming coming from the motel room and then her body being thrown out the window. The multiple suspected car transfers to get rid of her. How did no one hear or see anything that was going on? After getting to the bus station and abandoning his son, he then made the anonymous call that led police to Saeed's location, and then Abdur just left back down to California to continue on with his life. His defense attorney at trial was attorney Edward Jones. Attorney Jones asked for the charge to be lower than first-degree murder, and he specifically asked that Abdur be charged with manslaughter or just flat-out acquit him of the charges altogether. Attorney Jones claims that if Abdur had killed Yolanda, it was only because of extreme emotional distress. Yeah, right, Abdur was so distraught that this flash of anger caused him to kill her. Let's see here. What parts do we think were premeditated and what parts do we think were because of emotional distress? He had previously threatened to kill her by slitting her throat. Premeditated. He said that it would be justified if he did it. Premeditated. He set the whole plan in motion by buying a knife ahead of time. Premeditated. He got a rental to drive up there that night. Premeditated. He thought of the disposal plan so well, it seems, that it made her remains impossible to be found. Premeditated. If any of this entire night was based off of emotion... It was probably what to do with the son. Maybe he wasn't expecting Saeed to be there that night. Or maybe he was so overcome with his need to kill Yolanda and have control over her life that he didn't stop to think of that aspect. 
The anonymous call about his son being locked in the car at the Greyhound station, I think, is what really did him in. Without the proof that he lied as to his whereabouts that night, who's to say he would have just been looked as a suspect and then let go? Everything else seemed so planned out as best as he could, and that was what caught him up, the call. There was also an employee at the Greyhound station named Harold Freitag who testified saying he had saw Abdur the night of July 14th at the Greyhound station. If Saeed hadn't been left there locked in that car, Harold's testimony that Abdur was in the area that night could have just been looked at as a coincidence. This guy's placement of Abdur being in the area, especially at the Greyhound station where his son was, and the call were definitive proof that he had been near Yolanda's car and his son, who had been in Yolanda's care, making him positively in the presence of Yolanda that night as well. After saying that Abdur was such an emotional mess that he killed Yolanda, Attorney Jones said that Yolanda was a sex worker, and that's why she was killed. So does being a sex worker just automatically justify murder all of a sudden? I don't think so. Be for real. Yolanda's family was strongly adamant in denying that she was a sex worker at all. They ended up filing a grievance with the state bar after the trial, claiming that Attorney Jones had knowingly made false statements of fact. At the end of the trial in May of 1996, the jury didn't need long to deliberate in this case. In just one hour, they decided that 28-year-old Abdul Rashid Alwadud was guilty of first-degree murder. Prosecutor Underhill's case must have been so strong and persuasive for this to happen. One hour for deliberation in any case is crazy, but one hour in a deliberation on a case with no body? That's astonishing to me. Multnomah County Circuit Judge James Ellis sentenced Abdur to life in prison with possibility for parole after 25 years. The aftermath of this case is something to note as well. Cases aren't just done and over with when someone is sentenced. The families have to live with this for the rest of their lives. Susan was granted custody of Yolanda's son, Saeed, and she then went on to rename him Rodney after prosecutor Rodney Underhill, who had fought so hard for his mother. What a sweet gesture. In 2000, there was a measure on the Oregon ballot called Measure 94. This Measure 94 was controversial because if it passed, it would get rid of mandatory minimum sentences and could result in the resentencing of those convicted under the current Measure 11. When Measure 11 had passed in 1994, it had added minimum mandatory sentences for certain violent crimes and sex offenses. Like I said, there was controversy over this newly proposed Measure 94. Those who were for Measure 94 said it wasn't just specifically violent offenders that would be resentenced. Those who were for Measure 94 were also just fully in opposition to Measure 11 because to them it seemed like a one-strike type law. They said Measure 11 was unjust because there was a minimum sentence for almost six years for anyone, including children that were 15 years or older that had been tried as adults in court. Measure 11 also did not allow for early release in the case of good behavior or circumstantial sentencing. The circumstances for sentencing that people supporting Measure 94 were talking about were things like the fact that 56% of those being sentenced were first-time offenders and many were for nonviolent crimes. The judge generally has some say in the sentencing, like going easy on first-time offenders and things like that, and with Measure 11, that could not happen. They stated that there were more kids going to prison than school with the current Measure 11 and spoke of there being no options for young offenders to go into programs for rehabilitation as an option instead of jail. Those who were opposing Measure 94 were more plentiful. Their reasons for opposing the new measure were things like most of the current sentences under Measure 11 could be reduced, some as much as a half to two-thirds of their original sentence. 
there was talk that if Measure 94 passed, an estimated 800 to 1,300 kidnappers, rapists, child molesters, and killers would be resentenced under this Measure 94 and could be released in as little as 90 days. Not only would the old sentences be reduced, but the newly sentenced offenders would be getting more lenient sentences for their crimes. Two examples of those sentencing changes are for murder and for forcible rape. A sentence for murder could have had the mandatory sentence reduced from 25 years to just eight, less than a third of the original sentence. And the sentence for forcible rape would have been reduced from eight years to two years and four months, almost a quarter of the current minimum sentence. Within this group of people who were opposing Measure 94 was Yolanda's mother, Susan Panett. I can't imagine the concern she had if this measure got passed, that Abdur would be one of those that would be released after just being in jail for a couple of years. She and others that were opposing this Measure 94 wrote letters in hopes to get it stricken down. This is Susan's letter. Vote no on Measure 94. On July 14, 1995, my 21-year-old daughter, my only child, was murdered by her former partner in the presence of their two-year-old son. My daughter's body has yet to be recovered. I cannot explain the trauma and grief of losing a child by homicide. The pain is ever-present. The justice system cannot compensate for the loss of a child, nor a child's loss of his mother. But by fair, just, and equitable sentencing, it leads value to the victim's life and some peace to the surviving family. My daughter's son deserves to be protected from this criminal. This child is serving a true life sentence, forever deprived of his mother and stigmatized for life that his father murdered his mother, a murder that he witnessed. Measure 11 ensures that this criminal will serve a minimum of 25 years of his life sentence before being eligible for release. If Measure 11 is repealed, this offender could receive as little as a 10-year sentence. In considering his five years served and good time, this criminal could be released when our little boy is as young as 9 or 10 years old. Be aware that by eliminating Measure 11 in totality, all serious offenders sentenced under Measure 11 will be resentenced, including murderers, rapists, and child abusers. If Measure 11 is repealed, many of these criminals will be released immediately. As voters, we will not be able to go back and correct that wrong. It will be a done deal. I believe that voters want to stay strong in sending their message that Oregonians demand consequence to people who choose to commit heinous acts. I believe that Oregon voters will not repeal Measure 11. Please vote no on Measure 94. Susan Panek. This proposed Measure 94 ended up losing by a vote of 75 against and 25 for, and Measure 11 stayed in place. In 2019, Senate Bill 1008 was passed, and that slightly changed Measure 11, going easier on juveniles with sentencing and stating that all juvenile cases must start in the juvenile court rather than in adult court. Rodney Underhill and the Panek family stayed in contact, and when young Rodney turned 18, he was proud to vote for his namesake in that election. In 2013, Yolanda's name was added to the Parents of Murdered Children Memorial, and in 2014, the Yolanda Project began. The YWCA of Greater Portland transformed its shelter-based program into one which focuses on securing safe, affordable, long-term housing for survivors. Within the first year of the project being up and running, it reached four times the number of clients it would have normally served at the shelter. This project was able to get 240 families housed, versus just 68 they housed the previous year. This project is also sometimes called Yolanda House because it provides a transitional place for women seeking to rebuild their lives after escaping domestic violence. 
Susan said, quote, In my heart, I know that Yolanda's gift for caring for others will continue through Yolanda House, unquote. I think this is absolutely awesome. I think that Yolanda helped young women when she was here in her life, and now she's continuing to be able to do so even in her death. I did try to find links to this project, but I don't see it on the YWCA of Portland page anymore, at least not by Yolanda's name. The last post I saw it mentioned in was from 2018, but I found a shelter list that was updated in 2023 showing the Yolanda House as active, so maybe it just goes by a different name or something like that now. I hope it's still in effect. I think it's a wonderful tribute to a woman who spent her time trying to help other women, and it's also just a very useful resource for people that are in need. When you search for Yolanda House, the domestic violence hotline comes up, so even if nothing else, at least other resources are being shared if that Yolanda project slash Yolanda House are no longer around. In 2014, a report was published by the Obama administration called One is Too Many. In this report, it commemorates the 20th anniversary of VAWA, which is the Violence Against Women Act. The Violence Against Women Act was put in place in 1994, and it creates and supports comprehensive, cost-effective responses to domestic violence, sexual assault, dating violence, and stalking. This act is up for renewal every five years, and most recently received bipartisan reauthorization under President Biden in 2022. As for Abdur, what became of him? Well, he's picked up a new habit. He founded a crochet club since he's been in prison. In 2005, he and another inmate, a man named Pepe Rivas, co-founded this crochet club at the Oregon State Correctional Facility. The idea for this club started back in 2004 when Abdur was looking for positive programs for inmates and read an article in a Salem newspaper. The article was about a crochet group called Warm Up America. After seeing this article, he called Karen Bennett, who was a group volunteer that had been crocheting for over 34 years, and he called her to see about coming to get her to come to the prison and help. At first, she was a little reluctant, but she finally agreed, saying, quote, To me, they're just people who made bad choices, unquote. Most of the members of this crochet club are killers or sex offenders with long-term sentences and plenty of time on their hands. They meet for three hours a week to practice their skills. Everything that's made at this crochet club goes to charity, but they're also allowed to crochet in their spare time if they buy the yarn themselves. And if they do, they are allowed to make things for themselves or their family. Many have made hats, scarves, and blankets for their girlfriends, wives, or mothers. Despite this seemingly new leaf that Abdur has turned over, Susan says he's never admitted to killing Yolanda, nor has he even apologized or showed remorse about her disappearance and or death. She believes that Abdur is not doing this crochet club out of the goodness of his heart, but rather to pad his resume because she says he knows he's got to be good to get out. Abdur has had multiple parole hearings, the first in 2009 when parole was denied. Then in 2010, habeas corpus was denied. In this habeas corpus request, he said that he was sentenced to 25 years with the possibility of earlier release. This was not correct, though. Maybe in years prior, but on April 1st of 1995, when Measure 11 was passed, the mandatory minimum for murder was 25 years. He was sentenced in 1996, meaning that Measure 11's minimum mandatory of 25 years was in effect. His exact sentencing word for word is as follows, quote, The court sentences the defendant to imprisonment for life. The court further orders that the defendant shall be confined for a minimum of 25 years without possibility of parole, release on work release, or any form of temporary leave or employment at a work forest or work camp. This is a determinate sentence pursuant to ballot measure 11, unquote. 
I don't know how you could read that and think that it didn't mean anything other than 25 to life, with 25 being the minimum before parole could be looked at. It's very clear. According to his inmate page, it still shows him as being in prison with the earliest release as life. He should have been up for parole in 2021 from what I believe, but it looks like that didn't go through, so hopefully it stays that way. If anyone has any information that can help lead to the discovery of Yolanda's body, the investigating agency is the Portland Police and Heidi Hellig is the head detective. They can be reached at 503-823-0418. Yolanda's case number is number 95-69348. For NAMIS, which is the National Missing and Unidentified Person System, Yolanda's case is number MP. 25616 and the regional program specialist for contacting is Jessica Hager. She can be reached at 817-374-2765 or via email at jhager at rti.org. If you or someone you know need help getting away from domestic abuse or any violent relationship, please seek help within the local resources in your area or reach out to one of the following resources. The first is the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 800-799-7233, or you can text START to 88788. The second is STAND for Families Free of Violence at 888-215-5555. The third is LOVE IS RESPECT at 866-331-9474. And that's it. That was the case of Yolanda Panek. You know the deal. Follow the podcast on social media at Dark Happy Pod, and you can see pictures of who I talked about today and stay up to date on the latest podcast news. The resources for domestic violence are already there on my website, mydarkhappyplace.com, on the resource tab, along with other resources as well. Remember, there is no episode next week. I'm taking it off to give myself time to be present for the holidays. I'll be back in the new year on January 2nd, 2024, with the next episode. Have a safe and happy holiday season, however you celebrate. Bye!